Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. What is the one thing that I can give to God that He does not have? Because, I mean, you know, it's kind of like trying to buy a gift. You know how it is? What are you, you going to buy someone who has everything? I mean, here, here, what, what are you going to give God that He doesn't already have? You know what that one thing is? Our obedience. The one thing that we can give to God that He does not already have is our obedience. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Proverbs. What would you bring as a gift for someone who owned the entire world? Or to take it even further, what would you give as a gift to someone who owned all of creation? Have you ever wondered what you could give to God? In today's message, Pastor J.D. will teach you that the one thing you can give God is your obedience. Now be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. But for now, here's Pastor J.D. in Proverbs chapter 21 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. Proverbs chapter 21, let's jump in, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So again, right out of the shoe, we have a very interesting proverb. I know I say that about all of them, but particularly this one, and I think it's apropos for the time in which we live in today, particularly here in the U.S. of A, because the proverb is saying that God controls every leader, every ruler, every king, every president, every decision that is made, God directs it. And He directs it like a river of water that turns according to the direction that it will flow. God directs it like that, every decision. I had the privilege of meeting Dr. Robert Jeffress, who is on President Trump's team, and actually knows President Trump personally, and even before uh, he was president. He has been for many years good friends of Donald Trump. And and so I, I asked him some questions about the president, particularly as it relates to Israel. And actually we're going to talk about on Sunday the uh, long-awaited peace plan, dubbed the ultimate, the deal of the century, the ultimate deal of the century. And so I asked him the question about President Trump and, you know, what was his relationship like with the Lord. We know he's arguably the most pro-Israel president we've ever seen, would rival even that of a, of a Ronald Reagan as president. And he made an interesting comment to me because he basically, this was the, the gist of it, he said, I believe God has President Trump in office at this time for such a time as this. And then he said this, I also believe that God had Barack Obama in office for such a time as that. 
And I was just about ready to take a bite of my <laughs> dinner, and I had to just kind of catch my breath. And then he basically explained it. And he explained it like this, God is in control. I've said it many times, and perhaps this is as good of a time as any to say it again. It's true. God rules over all and overrules all. God has the final word on every decision. Never imagine, I know this is a kind of a silly way of illustrating it, but for lack of a better way of illustrating it, I have to say it this way. Never imagine that God is in heaven caught off guard by something that happens here on earth. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine God, who is all-knowing, omniscient, all-present, all-powerful, omnipotent, and something happens and, and God's like, wait, what? When did this happen? When did they make that decision? No. God knows the end from the beginning. God rules over all, overrules all, and directs the heart of rulers like rivers of water. And He turns it wherever He desires, whatever direction He desires. You know there's a, that one verse, and it's, it's really quite powerful when you think about it and unpack it, where God declares that He makes even the wrath of man to praise Him. I think of Joseph in Genesis chapter 20, verse 50, if my memory, which is failing, serves me correctly. It might be the other way around, where he's just revealed his identity to his brothers, and they are fearful for their lives because they know that with a word, not even a word, with a snap of his finger, it could be off with their heads. And he says to his brothers who betrayed him, left him for dead, sold him into slavery. He says to them, what you, you meant this for evil, but God, I love those two words, it changes everything, but God meant it for good. He took what you meant for evil, and as only He can, He turned it, directed it, orchestrated it, choreographed it, if you prefer, and worked it for good for the salvation of many this day, again, as only God can. Verse 2. This is an interesting proverb as well. I guess, again, they, they all are. But this really speaks to the heart of the matter. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Boy, isn't that true? I mean, we will go to the ends of the earth. We will tax the moon and the stars in our efforts to justify just how right we are. But, and there's a but here, the Lord weighs the hearts. It's really reminiscent of and sort of echoes the proverb that says there is a way that seems right to a man but it's the way that leads unto death. I mean, we can be so convinced of our own rightness in a matter, but ultimately it is the Lord that weighs the motive of the heart. I think this also speaks to how it is that sometimes we can do the right thing the wrong way 
the right thing with the wrong motive, the wrong heart, the wrong attitude, the right thing done in the wrong way. Verse 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. This reminds me of that account where Samuel calls basically King Saul on this disobedience on his part, where he was to completely eliminate the Amalekites, and he doesn't. He disobeys the command of the Lord, and basically that was the beginning of the end for him. It was at that point that the kingdom was taken from him, and it would be given to another. His name, we know him as David, King David. But he, he makes the sacrifice and offers the sacrifice to the Lord. But Samuel says to him that obedience is better than sacrifice. You know, if you were to try to answer this question, what's the one thing that you could give God that He doesn't already have? What do you think that would be? Let me ask the, the same question in a different way. What is it that God does not have that I have that I can give to Him? What is the one thing that I can give to God that He does not have? Because, I mean, you know, it's kind of like trying to buy a gift. You know how it is. What are you, you going to buy someone who has everything? I mean, here, here what, what are you going to give God that He doesn't already have? You know what that one thing is? Our obedience. The one thing that we can give to God that He does not already have is our obedience. Let's, let's take this and put it into the context of the family dynamic. Okay, your children, they've been disobedient, and they want to give you this gift, and it, it was a great sacrifice to them. They had to use their you know, their own money. They could have bought an app with that money, but they, uh, you know, used that instead to, you know, buy you a gift, and it came at a great sacrifice. What would you rather have? What they gave you that came at a sacrifice to them, or would you have much rather had their obedience? You know, my, my, my kids give me such a hard time whenever it's like Father's Day, or just like we just had Christmas, or my birthday, they'll say, hey, what do you want for your birthday? What do you want for Father's Day? What do you want? They don't, they don't ask me anymore, because they already know the answer. And I just say to them, and I, I mean it sincerely, and it really gets to them, <laughs> I say, I just want your obedience. I, I just want your obedience. I don't, I don't want anything. There's nothing you could give me that would be as valuable to me as your obedience. And how much more is this true to our Heavenly Father? Verse 4, a haughty look, this is outward, a proud heart, this is inward, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. What does this mean? Oh, as innocent as just plowing your field, if you've got a haughty look outwardly, a proud heart, inwardly, in the eyes of the Lord, it is sin. 
We're going to talk more about this. This is going to come up again. I mean, this is one of those recurring themes throughout the book of Proverbs concerning pride, haughtiness, arrogance. Verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. You know, I don't know if you ever heard this expression, it's actually a, a secular saying, but if you fail to plan, it's basically that you're going to plan to fail. You know, throughout Scripture there is this exhortation to always plan ahead. We're going to see this come up again as well in this chapter, chapter 21. But there's nothing wrong with planning. In fact, everything right with planning. Always have plans. Hold on loosely to those plans, because the Lord has editing rights over them, so to speak. But the plans of the diligent are that which lead to plenty, to prosperity. And then conversely, the ones who don't plan, they just rush into it, fly by the seat of their pants, as the saying goes, and it will ultimately lead to poverty. You know, when I was in the business world, as many, many years ago now, the great pains that I would take, the, the enormous amount of time that I would commit to just planning paid off without exception. As hard as it was sometimes, I would, I would have to discipline myself and plan out my day, my week, my month, more long term, my year. You had to. If you didn't, forget it. I mean, you had to have those plans in place, and it took both diligence and vigilance. And there's a difference between those two words, and that's what the Proverbs is saying. Verse 6, getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. In other words, you're trying to get rich by deceptive means. And I mean, you just, you live in this fantasy world that somehow you're going to be able to get away with it. Ultimately, it will never be blessed and even could lead to one's death. It could be a life or death matter. Verse 7, the violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. Again, these kind of go together, as does verse 8. The way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, his work is right. I was thinking about verse 8 this afternoon as I was preparing. It kind of hit me how hard of a life it is for somebody that is always guilty of wrongdoing. They're always looking over their shoulder. They're always trying to hide, cover up. You always know it's wrong when you have to hide it. And, and you really have to have a good memory, right? I mean, when you're deceitful, when you're dishonest, when you're lying, 
when you're guilty of wrongdoing, don't you have to have a good memory to remember what you said so that you won't be found out? What a way to live. Who wants to live like that? But contrasted with the one that's walking in purity, in integrity, in honesty, his work is right. What a, what a great way to live your life. You got nothing to hide. I mean, you're walking in the light, not in darkness. You're not trying to cover up anything. My son taught us a, a card game we were playing as a family, and you, you basically have to, you know, put down a certain card, and if you don't have that card, you've got to, well, pretend like you do, i.e. lie, <laughs> and say that you do. And then it's up to the other players to call you out on it. And I was, I was thinking to myself, so basically, this is a, a game that is based on deceit. And so I, I decided, you know, okay, here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to win this game by being honest. It was not easy to do, but boy was I free. And when I did win with honesty, I mean, it was just, it was amazing. And of course, you know, you had to expose the deceit on the other part of the other family members, which was kind of interesting in and of itself. But let's move on, verse 9. <laughs> this uh, is going to come up again, and we've already talked about this. I do want to mention a couple things, because I think it, it uh, might be germane to our understanding when it comes to the husband-wife relationship. But it says, better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Now you have to understand in the, in the Middle East, the, the tops of the houses, they were flat, and they were actually space that they would use. And so this proverb is saying that it would be better to be on the top of the house, on that you know flat rooftop, than it would be to be inside the house with a cantankerous and contentious wife who's always nagging, always criticizing, always complaining. Now, this does speak to chiefly the wife in the house, but you know, sometimes it can also apply to the husband in the house too. How about that? I, I think really the takeaway from this proverb has to do primarily with contention. Now for the man, I can attest to this, <laughs> that we want peace and quiet. We want peace in our homes. I mean, many of us, we, we go out into the workplace and it's just riddled with chaos and contention and you're just fighting and it's a battle and you come home and you want it to be a, a, a sanctuary. You want it to be a place that you can just come and land and catch your breath and just have some, some peace and quiet. But if you have a contentious wife who is constantly criticizing everything, and I, I do, I think I have to say this, and I, and I only say it because I want to be obedient to what the Lord has put on my heart to say, but 
wives, we as husbands are doing the best we can. (laughs) We really are. And we really need a supportive wife. We know, (laughs) we already know our shortcomings and our failings in those areas in our lives that, you know, we could do better. And when the wife is constantly berating the husband, God forbid usurping the husband's authority, that's like the ultimate. That was actually the curse in the garden. You know, when I was a young believer in Genesis, when you know, God pronounced the curse on the man by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work the ground, you know, the toil, the labor of your work is going to be by the sweat of your brow. I mean, I got that one. But then when it came time for the curse on the woman, okay, your pain in childbirth is going to be just horrible. And then your desire will be for your husband. I'm thinking, oh, that's not bad. (laughs) The, The woman's going to desire her husband. That's not what it says. (laughs) Come to find out what the curse was really about was that you as the wife will now desire to usurp your husband's authority. Oh, well that kind of changes the complexion of the whole thing, doesn't it? You know, As a man, there is something to be said about our manhood. And we live in a day and an age where boys are being brought up and they know nothing of what it means to be a man, a true man. And the last thing we need as men is for our wives to berate us, undercut us, undermine us, contend with us, nag at us, be critical of us. You're just tearing your own marriage down. When you tear us down, I'm not speaking us, you guys, I gotta be careful where I look too. How about I just look down when I talk about this? (laughs) I'm talking to those online, that way it's more anonymous. I think you get the point. You're tearing your own house down. You're tearing your husband down. it's, It's really, you're doing that to yourself. How much better it would be to encourage him. I I tell you, as a man living in the world that we live in today, we really need encouragement. I mean, we really are doing our best. I don't think that we're deliberately trying to be bad husbands and bad fathers. But just, we just need encouragement. You know, there there is such a thing as healthy criticism, but there's also such a thing as unhealthy criticism, the kind of criticism that really just, I mean, cuts to the quick. The words of wisdom the book of Proverbs provides weren't meant to only be applied to life in the author's time. They were also meant to benefit generations to come, including you. All ages and walks of life can benefit from this book in this modern world. Proverbs gives you practical advice for living a life that's pleasing to your Creator. It also shares insight for ways to interact with others to not only show love, but to model Jesus. Pastor J.D. will have more to share from Proverbs when you join us next time on In Spirit and Truth. In the meantime, you can listen to more teachings from Pastor J.D. at our website, 
in spiritandtruthradio.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast, connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and even download our mobile app. This is a great way to keep Pastor J.D.'s teachings with you wherever you go, and even share them with others. You'll find a link to download at our website. Again, that's in spiritandtruthradio.com. We also invite you to check out Pastor J.D.'s weekend update, the Mideast Prophecy Update. In these updates, Pastor J.D. takes a critical look at the news and events happening around the globe and compares them to prophecies of the Bible, sharing God's views on what's taking place. You'll find these updates on our mobile app or on our website. One more time, that's in spiritandtruthradio.com. That's all we have time for today. We pray you've been encouraged by this teaching in Proverbs and that you'll continue to study them on your own. Tune in next time for more right here on In Spirit and Truth.